0: Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable, board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're welcoming back Joe Slack, a professional board game designer and author of the number one international best-selling book, The Board Game Designer's Guide. Today, we're going to go talk about Joe's newest book, The Board Game Designer's Guide Careers in the Industry, which launched just this week. Joe, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing, man?
1: I'm doing well. James, how are you doing?
0: I am doing fantastic. Uh, I actually had a good chance to uh, read this book. I do appreciate you sending me uh, a, kind of a preview to, to read. Uh, it was an easy read, like all of your books, of course. And uh, I thought, wow, what a great uh, great topic of discussion to just kind of get you on the binge and uh, and talk about it. So why don't we start off by explaining what is this book about and why did you write it?
1: sure uh this book is really talking about all the different jobs roles and careers that are available in the industry out there in the in the board game industry uh besides you know the typical thing that people think about which is you know game designer or publisher and the reason that uh, the idea came to me really was um, a talk that I saw from Scott Gaita from Renegade Games, he did at ProtoTO. I only saw the recording. I wasn't there for the actual event. Um, but he that, that's what his whole talk was on. It was about, you know, there, there's other things out there. And he talked about, you know, graphic design and project management and all of the other things. And you hear everybody wanting to get in as a game designer. I thought, well, this would be a great topic to go and, you know, interview and talk to a whole bunch of other people in the industry who are doing all these different roles, find out how they got into them what qualifications they need, what they like about it, what advice they have for other people getting into it, that type of thing, and share with others who may not even know that these opportunities exist and they can use their own skills and experience that they have maybe from other industries and apply them in the board game world.
0: And how how many people did, did you interview? There was a lot of quotes in there. I was just trying to think of the total number of people that you interviewed for this.
1: Yeah, it was it was well over forty people. Um, yeah, it was it was quite a few uh, from publishers to rule book writers to content creators to reviewers, graphic designers, just everybody across the spectrum.
0: What I thought was really cool was it's not like you're just saying, well, here's a, here's a quote, or you know, uh, you know, here's a topic, or you know, some notes, and I attribute it to this person over here. You're actually almost showing little mini case studies, <laughs> which I thought was awesome, right? Because I think mm-hmm. from a you know, being a publisher myself, kind of reading through, it really helped me put myself in the shoes of other people. Right. And kind of say, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been in that kind of situation. Oh, it's interesting how their, their take is on it. So now talking to that many people, especially with COVID, how long did this take you to put together?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, the whole process uh, took quite a while uh, because it's, you know, reaching out to people to see if they're interested in it, um, getting them to answer the questions. You know, some people uh, preferred to do it over more of like a, like a form or an email. Some people shot a video, a couple people wanted to do an actual call. Um, so, I mean, it does take a bit of time to go through all that, but I thought that would be the best method. Like I can talk about all these other roles in the industry. And I know you know a fair bit about different pieces, but I haven't necessarily you know done those roles. Um, not every single one of them. Um, so I, I thought it was very valuable to reach out to the people that had been doing it for quite a while and and get their insights into it. Uh, that would be the, the best method. And and like you said, putting together kind of like case studies. After I got all this information, it's like how am I going to do this? Am I just going to use you know just like a little quote here or there that type of thing? Uh, but it just kind of made sense to include some of their quotes and talk about some specific things that they felt were really valuable, like the things that they do in their role, um, the skills that they bring to the role, what other advice they have for somebody that wanted to get into the role, that kind of thing and intertwine it with, you know, my own experiences, other things that I've seen and kind of just, you know, make it a a good narrative, a good story all the way through.
0: And so the, the number one, I, um, uh role I guess that most people think about is, is probably game designer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh followed by that I would say is probably publisher. Um developers maybe kind of in between there where people and that was a big learning for me when I got into the industry is kind of the difference between, you know, developers actually a different role <laughs> than the publisher is different role than than the designer. Um, mm-hmm. But there's there's so many roles. What was the biggest surprise for you? Like what was the one where you thought I didn't even it didn't even enter your mind as a potential uh you know, kind of offshoot in this
1: industry? Well, I, I would say going back a few years, uh, something like a rule book editor, a rule book writer, that was one, I, I think it was Dustin Stats I heard on uh, Board Game Design Lab a couple of years ago. And I was like, wow, people do that, like actual like rule book creation. I'm like, well, it makes sense, you know, because designers are so close to it and that kind of thing that, um, you know, it, it helps to have somebody else that has that expertise that knows about layouts and writing styles and explaining a game really well. So going back more in time, that was one that I didn't really know about. Um, thinking about more ones that are um, kind of uh, newer, um, I, I hadn't really thought too much about um, project management and um, and things like that, like how just how important it was And it depends on the the publisher because some publishers are really small, like, you know, one person, two, three, four people. They might not have all these different roles. They might not have game designers and game developers and everybody on on their staff. Uh, But the one thing is you really have to be comfortable learning a bunch of different things. I, I found out more and more. So even though you might be hired as, you know, head of game development or project manager or whatnot, you're probably still going to have to, you know, run things at the booth, um, at conventions. Um, you might have to do play testing, do acquisitions, um, help out with finance, help out with the books, like whatever it takes uh, when you're a very small company, even though you might be hired for a certain role, there's a lot of other different things that you might have to be pulled into as well.
0: It's interesting when you talk about the rule book. Um, the my most recent game, Nutty Squirrels of the Oakwood Forest. Um, I had a, a a friend who reached out to me and said, "Hey, you know, I'd love to, you know, take a look at your your rule book." And I kind of sent it to him more from a, "Hey, can you check over the grammar and make sure there's no uh, glaring spelling mistakes and so forth in here." Stephen Hill was his name, and I think it was my realization when he went through it that there's a there is a difference between. Having people uh, edit your rule book from a completely from a grammar standpoint, and uh, and you know just making sure your words and everything are right, and actually edit it from a, is this actually explain the rules properly? You know, are people going to walk away and get this? Is there pieces that are missing? Can they be laid out differently? And when I was reading this in your book, it kind of reminded me of that. I'm like, wow, you know, there th- those are really kind of two very different things. Where from the outside looking in, you might just say, well, that's just that that's just a rule book editor, but th- that could actually be two distinct roles.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and one person that I interviewed for it is a, a friend of mine, and he's a, a designer in Toronto as well, Jeff Fraser. He does not only um, the editing, but he does the whole rule book layout and everything. So he has a background in journalism um, and technical writing. So he's really good at that style. Um, but also he really knows graphic design and layout, how to set up examples, how to fl- have a game flow through using consistent language, because you don't want to refer to something as a round and a turn or refer to, oh you know, when the doctor does this, and then also say something like uh, the medical officer or something like that. Like those little terms, people are like, well, wh- well, who's that kind of thing? Like you have to be so consistent, lay it right out um, and, and make sure everything's completely clear right all the way through.
0: Yeah, I had a lot of that on in our book. I had referred to branches as limbs interchangeably. Uh, mm-hmm. and then I had like, uh, you know, broke, I'd refer to things as broken branches. Then I refer them as broken leaf cards and it was all over the map, but you get copy blind, right? I guess is the word where if you, if you read something over enough, your brain will actually do the corrections and you're reading it, and it looks correct and it may not be correct. Uh, mm-hmm. so your own mind can play, uh, play tricks on you. So it's always good to kind of have that kind of third set of eyes or outside look, you know, looking in to make sure everything is, uh, is good and clean. Um, absolutely. One thing you really talked about was that um, what I found interesting was uh, the idea of communication, right? And uh, if you want to be a publisher, I think you specifically said you've got to be a great communicator. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. I would say, yeah, not even just for a publisher, but almost in any role. Um, communications is is so important. Um, I mean, if you're a publisher, you need to be able to communicate with all your artists and graphic designers, uh, rulebook editor, designers, developers, uh, sales team, everybody, they all have to be on the same page. You have to be able to give a clear vision of what you wanna do with this game and, and what everybody's expectations are, what your expectations are of them and make sure that that's clear deadlines, timelines, everything. Uh, but also, you know, if you're a, a graphic designer, you have to know exactly, you know, what's expected of you and what you expect of, you know, the publisher, who you're working with, uh, designer, same thing. I mean, almost anybody in the role, it's it's super critical that you're communicating and making sure that everybody's on the same page. You never want to get to a point where somebody's like, well, wh- where's that thing that I asked for? Oh, well, you said, you know, it's, it's not that be- big a rush. Yeah, but I need it for today. Well, you didn't say specifically today, <laughs> that type of thing. So just have to make sure that, you know, everybody is like on the same on the same wavelength, and and whatever platform you're using, whether it's you know just through email, if you're using um, Slack or Trello or whatever tool you're using, so that everybody knows, everybody has access to that, um, and, and and can make changes and, and recommendations and that type of thing, and knows you know what you're working towards.
0: If you're going to be a publisher, should you design or develop first, or does
1: it matter? Um. Well, it, it just depends. I think. Being a, I mean, a lot of people do start out designing a game, and then and then decide that they want to self-publish. So they they they're a designer, and then they become a publisher. Anyhow. I think most publishers in some way have designed at least a game and have, have tried to do it that way, uh, which is good because you know everything that goes into a game and then you know the development work that's needed afterwards and working with other people. And then you're learning the publishing side, um, how to get the game out, how to market it, how to, how to publish it and work with manufacturers, work with everybody else. Um, so I, th- I think it's probably a good idea if you're going to become a publisher to know what it's like. Um, as a designer, because then you can relate to designers a lot better. Um, you won't have you know unreasonable expectations like, oh, we you know we need to design a solo mode for this. Can you can you get that to us by like you know the end of the week kind of thing? Like you know to understand that you know it's going to need time to be developed and play tested and, and tested with other people. You can't just you know give somebody a few days to do something like that. So I think it always helps to understand that, and you're not always going to be able to be. Um, an expert in all areas or have tried everything. Like you're not going to have necessarily uh, done graphic design and art and rule book editing and game design and everything. So you're not going to have everything there. Uh, But at least if you, if you have some background in some of those areas and try to fill the other needs with other people who are better than you at certain things. Uh, For example, if like having a, um, an art director, um, having somebody who's doing development while you focus on, you know, uh, project management and sales or something like that. Like it, it's, it's about, you know, going with your strengths and having other smart people there with you who know those other things that so you don't, or, or you're not as good at. Well,
0: I thought it was interesting about the, uh, the comments on the developer is really, it's about budget and schedule. I think is what you say in your book. Um, in the, or one of the people you interviewed said that, um, that's kind of the key role of if you're a developer on a team and that's your specific role, um, you know, the designer, you know, their job is to create a great game, right? And then if you're the the publisher, you're the one that's going to basically fund it and, uh, and kind of get it on the shelves. But that in-between part is so critical of um, making sure that it's going to be economical, right? So you get it on budget mm-hmm. and you're going to deliver your timelines. And I think you even talked about this with your recent uh, solo game you did where you gave an example of... Uh, adjusting, I think, uh, the blocks, uh, the number of cubes and how you're putting that in your box to get the cost down because, you know, you've got the great design, but then when it comes to the practicality mm-hmm. of, of getting it to market, that's a whole different skill set uh, that you got to consider
1: yeah game development is is really underrated, and not every creator, not every publisher uses a separate game developer sometimes you know they if they sign a game with a designer and then some changes made and that kind of thing they go through the designer and just ask them to make those changes play test it get it get it work there because essentially they they don't have to pay that person they're you know they're already um you know signed on and are going to get the royalties and everything, and they want to make it the best game possible and that type of thing. Uh, but uh, the ga- role of a game developer is really, you know, a, st- a step aside from the game designer, and it's it's really a critical role because what they're doing is they're taking what is, you know, a good or a great game and turning it into a great product. Uh, they're, you know, finding out all those little edge cases and uh, looking at the components and looking at all the cards, looking at all the aspects, and saying, is this needed? Is this necessary? Uh, why is th- Why is this here? Could we do this double sided? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. W- Areas where you can, you know, possibly bring the cost down. Um, especially, you know, if a if a publisher has in mind, you know, our box, our games are always, you know, in the $30 to $40 range. And well, right now it's gonna be at 45 to 50. Well, how can we get it down to that? Um, so places where you can trim, but without without damaging the quality of the game, obviously. Um, yeah, the the, the example that you were mentioning, relics of Raj Vahara, my game, I had 52 one-inch wooden blocks that were gonna be uh Uh, screen printed and you know in addition to cards and other components and stuff it was going to be pretty expensive to be made and I looked at it and I, I put on my own development hat on my own game and said okay how can I reduce this but still have a fantastic game that's you know I don't want the game to be any less than it is now and I found ways to cut out 14 blocks and I got it down to 38 which was a considerable change um, it, it reduces also the weight of the game, the amount of uh, box size I need, um, and the cost for, for production. And it was able to actually make the game as good, if not a little bit better, because I was constrained. And, and that's something you have to do as a developer, and even as a designer sometimes, is constrain yourself and say, how can I make this an 18-card game without without using anything else? How can I reduce the number of components and have it all fit in this box or whatever? And and that's going to help it to make make it a better product because it's going to be... Uh, a better cost a better a better price point for your consumers so instead of you know being a fifty dollar game that they might be like oh i'm not sure if you can bring it down to a forty dollar game then be like yeah that seems about good perceived value for it so uh that that's part of the development work as well
0: yeah i had uh, encountered that on the nice scrolls of the oakwood forest ga- uh, game as well uh where i i'm my own developer right so i'm the publisher i'm also the, the developer in this case i was the designer as well coded design with my brother Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I I almost kind of had the different hats, right? So I had the first hat, which was the game designer. So I had made it with these minis and I had the 3D models and everything done. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I kind of just made this like the the biggest possible game I could. (laughs) And then when I was done that, I'm like, okay, now it's time to start figuring the manufacturing on this. I had to kind of take that hat off and put on the developer hat. And it's like, ooh, this isn't going to work. This (laughs) is going to be way more complicated than it needs to be. Um, You know, if I cut the minis, is that going to impact the gameplay? Not really. So I had to make some tough decisions like that, and we end up, you know, shifting some things over to be more digital. So you know, if somebody wants to print their own minis, they can. But the general population will, uh, you know, will be fine with meeples, right? For instance. So it's kind of making those tough decisions and being willing to kind of, um, kind of cut your favorite scene. I think it's George Lucas that was once quoted saying that as a good director is a director that's willing to cut their favorite scene, right, mm-hmm. for the sake of uh, pacing it in a movie and so forth. So, um, what would you say makes a good project manager?
1: Well, a good project manager really needs to. Um, the, the main thing is is be able to deliver on time and on budget. Um, so you know they're they're given a timeline for when this game needs to be released, for example, and you know that the the cost for manufacturing must be you know w- within this uh, range. And you know they might be given both. It might just be a matter of okay, we already have the game pretty much developed. We know what's going on. We need to get it out by this time. So they need to be able to coordinate with a bunch of other people, which is not always easy uh, because, you know, you've got a lot of freelancers. That's the other thing, you know, you really have to understand about the industry is there's so many people working freelance. So you're going to be working with, you know, graphic designer, uh, one or more artists, uh, possibly a rule book writer, a game developer, um, you know, sales, communications, social media, uh, doing all that stuff. And some of those people might be in-house, but a lot of them are going to be outside of that. So you're relying on them delivering on those timelines when they have other projects with other publishers and, and other uh, you know companies that they're working with as well. Um, so being able to communicate timelines, making sure everything's done well and you know being able to put those buffers buffers in and know where the bottlenecks might come in and be able to continue to move forward. So it's really all about a matter of um, understanding you know where the issues could be, building yourself enough time for that, giving yourself buffer room, and, and delivering, at the end of the day, uh, a great product.
0: I was thinking, you know, I remember I was reading through some of the examples, and I'm like, this is the one, I think, transferable skill that probably needs the least um, f- you know, prior knowledge of the board game industry. I, I think actually somebody could literally be a project manager who's never played a board game in their life and knows absolutely nothing about the industry because for me, project management was you know, my previous life working for like a food company, for instance, we had project managers and their job was basically to say, okay, you have all these people doing all this stuff and they need one person to make sure that all that stuff is basically the timelines and everything line up. And if this person needs this person's stuff, okay, we'll make sure that, you know, their start time is, you know, set with that end time. And if that goes over, how's it going to impact over project? So they're constantly kind of with all these Gantt charts, kind of mapping things out. Not saying you have to get that, that, uh, advanced with, um, Project management on on uh, you know the board game industry certainly I think it would help, but to me it's like you know literally this is the, probably the one uh, skill set that somebody can come in from another industry blind and still uh, be be quite effective.
1: I think so yeah um it, it's it's just a matter of you know hitting timelines if you if you work project management especially with something that's a physical product um that's that's one of the differences too like as opposed to like you know video games or or something else that's more of a digital product um because you have all the you know the manufacturing that goes into it and shipping and all the things that can go wrong in between there um, and you know there's 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 different bottlenecks and different things that can go wrong in that process versus something that's that's digital which they they have their own um, you know issues that they have to deal with as well but yeah if you've if you've been able to do that I think it's something that's that's very transferable um, whereas some other roles might be a little harder um, marketing for example. Uh, it, it can apply in a lot of different ways but if you don't understand how the board game industry works um, how how Kickstarter works, uh, what people are looking for in a board game if you just come in from the outside and just say oh I know all about marketing and sales I can do this no problem well you're gonna have a little bit of a learning curve you're gonna have to understand how the industry works as a whole and conventions and how you know it's not a you know cutthroat, uh technology uh k- kind of a an atmosphere where everybody's you know butting heads and, and competing and that type of thing it's, it's very collaborative and and publishers want to see other publishers do well generally um uh, because we just want to you know to get more people into gaming uh that's that's the main thing
0: i'd say social media is probably a good example of that where um there's a Big difference between a social media manager for XYZ brand and a social media manager for this specific industry. Um, It's very nuanced. It is uh, very much based on networking and um, and really knowing how to get to the right people. Um, That is a skill set. If somebody has it in this industry, I think they could could do very well uh, getting kind of connected with the right game. Um, you mentioned earlier about freelance. Would you say freelance is kind of the 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 single kind of most common entry point uh, to these various jobs?
1: I'd say so. Um it, it's much harder to get a job with a publisher because what you have is you have a few like really really big publishers. You got like Hasbro and like Spin Master and a couple others right at the top, and then you have you know some some medium publishers, and then a ton of really really small publishers that are just you know a couple people, maybe you know one person, one man or one woman show, and or a couple friends um, that you know started up a company that kind of thing. So they kind of do it all. Um, they're not going to hire until. gotten a little bit bigger and they realize okay we need we need more help you know we're 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 big enough now we can afford to do this um and a lot of cases it's it's who you know kind of thing um so a lot of these roles are just hired on freelance and and it it makes sense in a lot of cases because a small publisher is not going to go out and hire an artist and give them a full-time salary because for every game that they have it might be in a different style And they don't necessarily have enough work to keep somebody employed full time all year round. Uh, Same thing goes with graphic designer um, development work, that type of thing. It just depends how big they are. But yeah, a lot of them are going to be freelance roles and even getting in with a company quite often, you will have been doing freelance, you know, maybe with that company, with other companies and build up your reputation. And then when something comes along, it's quite often who, you know, in the industry. So if you've, you know, helped a publisher by reviewing rule books or done playtesting with them or done demos at conventions, uh, done a little bit of development work, especially like for free or for very cheaply, um, and they know you and they know you work well with them, then you know when they're looking for somebody in that kind of a role, you're going to be one of the first people to come to mind because they're more likely to take on somebody who's a known quantity than take a risk with somebody else that they don't even know.
0: That's a good point. You talk in the book a little bit, I, I call it the rate ladder. Um, but you mm-hmm. have this kind of idea that if somebody's trying to get into the industry and you want to get your foot in the door, you're likely looking at offering your services for free. Um, you know, if you want to build a portfolio, you're probably looking at charging, you know, very low cost in, in order to build that portfolio up. And then as you're saying, as your name gets out there and people start getting to know you and what you can do. That's when you get to the point where you can start charging what you're worth, and I think one of the examples he gave was uh, Tristan Morrison, um from uh, Lighthouse Games. I think was one of the examples where he had a very, very broad background in, in illustration, and then when he got into this industry, um, you know, he did a lot of kind of jobs on spec and you know working with people, working with his rates to kind of get his foot in the door and really kind of you know get kind of his little chunk of the market. And now he's at a point where he's in high demand, right? So then you can kind of kind of set your rates in there. I think so. Um, and I think that really applies to uh, literally any role in this industry. Is that fair to say? Like uh, you kind of do that ladder free, then low, then charge what you're worth once you have that portfolio.
1: Yeah. Um, it depends on the role specifically, but quite often that's, that's how you're going to start is, is by doing something for free, whether it's you're an artist and you, you've done some fan art, you've done um, uh, a redo of a box you've created uh, a reference card that type of thing if you're a graphic designer or or an artist posting some things online and maybe somebody will discover you that kind of thing or going to some publishers and 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 asking Showing them some of your work and asking for you know to help them out, especially if it's a you know project you're really interested in, and you know maybe doing it at a lower rate. So quite often it is that doing it at a lower rate or doing some stuff for free for a company, and then you can start charging more. It's it's all about building up your portfolio really, because you can't just go to somebody and say, oh you know I want to charge you know fifty dollars an hour to do graphic design for you. Well, what have you done before? Well, maybe I've done something in other industries. Well, what have you done in board games? Because you know there's different specifications and and different needs and 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 you know people are looking for different things in board games and and you see some board game art is absolutely gorgeous, um, it's you know works of art. So they need to see that you can do things that are going to fit well with you know a game box and that type of thing or art for cards and that type of thing. So you can do some small projects with people for you know very little money or or for free in some cases just to get your foot in the door get your reputation get a portfolio and then you can start to come to these publishers and say hey look look at the stuff that I'm I'm working on I'd like to work with you too and as you get more and more uh you know projects under your belt your portfolio is getting bigger and bigger you can start to increase your rates increase your rates and then you can start earning what you feel you believe you uh, you know you're due because in any kind of creative field you kind of have to prove yourself uh first and and one way to do that is to you know show that you can do the work, uh, that you're a good person to work with. Uh, you deliver on time and you have great results. And, and that will just make your portfolio better. Like the first few things you do, maybe you're not going to be the best, but as you're working on it more and more, you're going to understand what, what the actual needs are and you're going to be able to fill, uh, fulfill some of those gaps.
0: How important are conventions and what role do you see them playing in uh, people kind of getting into this industry?
1: Uh, conventions are pretty huge. I mean, that that's where all, you know the, the deals are made and people meet up face to face. I mean you can uh, cold pitch through email and, and do things virtually, but it's it's nothing like meeting somebody you know face to face, you know shaking a hand, playing a game with somebody, that type of thing. they're gonna remember that face they're, they're gonna remember your name, you can exchange a card, you can talk to them. Um, you know even whether it's you know doing something helpful for a publisher like demoing games for them, helping them sell their games at a convention. Uh, meeting with them, pitching to them, showing them stuff you're working on. If you're a reviewer, asking for review copies of their game, that type of thing to do to do reviews. Uh, you know, conventions are are where people chat and and meet and network. And this is a very very social community. So you really have to get yourself out there. And and for a lot of us. You know, we're introverts and it's hard to do. Uh, so we have to find ways to break out of that shell. And, you know, some maybe it's a matter of, you know, going with somebody else who's, you know, doing something similar or partnering with somebody or, you know, just, just approaching a small publisher, first of all, and kind of working your way up or, or just finding something that's comfortable for you to do. But, yeah, it's very much conventions are a, are a huge part of that for sure.
0: And certainly it's got to be tougher now with COVID, uh, mm-hmm. you know, things being shut down and these conventions kind of going virtual Um, you don't have the same ability that you would have uh, in the live conventions where you literally just walk up to a table and and strike up a conversation. On the online version of these conventions, you have to kind of schedule appointments and so forth. So, you know, I'm eager to see this kind of come back, right? Because I think that uh, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of opportunity for people there. I know when I read this book, uh, it it really made me uh, kind of understand that there's always stuff to learn. And, you know, although I'm a publisher, uh, you know, I've now done three games, um, I was still learning stuff reading reading through this book, right? So, you know, I'd say this book isn't just for, you know, people getting into the industry for the first time. If you're in the industry in any one of the disciplines, I think it's a great read just to kind of familiarize yourself with some of the other aspects. And you might be inspired and have some ideas. You know, the conventions was a perfect example. I remember the last convention I worked um, is my brother and I were, were working the the convention and you know, I was thinking in the back of my head, man. I wish I had some staff for this, man. You know, we can't really afford mm-hmm. staff, and I guess we're just gonna have to work it. Because I was used to conventions and, you know, the supplements industry where I, you know, where my background is. Well, kind of looking at, you know, the way you described in the book, I'm pretty sure next time I do a convention, I'll probably send an email to say, hey is there anybody that's interested in working the convention with us? And by the way, we'll maybe pay your, your admission to get into the convention. It's probably going to be a couple people that volunteer just to like get some experience in the board game industry. So, you know, it's, it's cool to kind of get that inspiration from different things. And I think this book is a, is a great example of that. The other thing I, um, I noticed when I was reading through the book that, uh, really kind of sparked my, my thought process was the whole digital programmers, uh, job. Right. And, I think what's you know what's very clear by the time you're done reading this book is that you can take an industry which seems very small and it is kind of small and niche, but you can slice that into a million slices, and each one of those slices can be uh, a job, right? And and where people can develop a very very strong, solid skill set and be an expert at that slice. Digital programmers is one that I can see is uh, a need for that. I know I've struggled with getting. Uh, Access to so whether it be tabletop simulator where you know most games now have to be demoed on tabletop simulator because of COVID, and you know tabletop simulator is not super hard to do yourself, um, but things like scripting and so forth is you know it's kind of that next that next level of skill set that most people probably aren't interested in trying to teach themselves. So if there's someone out there that you know knows how to do scripting and, and simple basic programming, this is an industry. That is screaming. That has just an immense, immense demand for that skill set, right? There's no shortage of games where people need, you know, their game programmed and the cards automatically dealt out and the table already automatically set up. You're seeing more and more um, uh, Kickstarter's people taking their actual, uh, like, uh, video recording or screen recording of their uh, tabletop simulator, you know, moving around the box and using that as some of their a cheap way of doing their animation. So all these things, uh, if if there's someone out there listening or watching that if you have any kind of experience at all in, in programming, um, man, you know, reach out to uh, to publishers and reach out to different game designers. Put your name on on the different uh, Facebook groups and the forums. I guarantee you're gonna have people that uh, they're gonna reach out to you and say, hey, let's uh, let's see if we can figure something out here. The biggest one for me that I still have not yet found somebody for. And if there's anybody listening and you know how to do this, reach out to me through the binge. Is board game arena. So board game arena is one of the largest digital platforms in the world uh, for playing board games, and I think the reason why is it's very automated, right? So Tabletopia, Tabletop Simulator, very in kind of in a similar vein where you're still having to use your mouse to pick up pieces and you know roll the dice and you know move cards and so forth. Where board game arena. Um, you know, you click a button and everything's dealt and then it'll tell you, give you, here's your three options to choose from. You click the option and it does all the, the stuff for you. And I think that's why it's attractive to so many people. You can play it on your phone and so forth. So if there's anybody out there who knows how to do programming board Game Arena, uh, this is something that uh, gets your name out there because again, there's a huge demand for that. For sure. What is your next uh, or data analysis? Actually, let me one more thing. Data analysis is something I thought about when I was reading this book as well. Um, I was looking at some Kickstarter uh, data recently of my mo- most recent campaign. And as I was looking through the data, I thought, you know what? If there's anybody out there is good at data analysis, this would be another career that they if they want to get into board game industry. And they're from another industry where maybe they're doing data analysis or statistical analysis and so forth for you know XYZ company and XYZ uh, industry. That is an easily transferable skill uh, coming over to this one where there are so many Kickstarters that are run every single week. Um, I'm sure that if uh, you want to offer your analysis skills, there's some publishers and so forth out there that would probably uh, be interested in at least uh, listening to what you have to say. So.
1: James, uh, that, that's so funny you say that because I, I was a healthcare data analyst for 17 years before I, I joined here. So <laughs> that's kind of, that that was kind of my thing be, before uh, I got into board uh, board games and game design.
0: Yeah, and the data is robust, right? So if you get lots of data through Kickstarter, if you use a pledge manager like uh, like CrowdOx, for example, or uh, BackerKit, um, there's tons of data you can kind of mine through there as well. Social media data once you run your campaign, like there's just so much data to pour through. And that is not most people's forte, right? It's not. So I think it's something that if, you know, like yourself, you know, where you've got that skill set, you know, it, uh, that that could be your ticket in, right? So what's your, uh, like, what, what are you working on now, Joe? Like I know you've, you're, you're, a, you know, a designer, you're a teacher, you teach game design, you run, um, you know, play test nights, you're, you're writing book after book. What's kind of next on, on the docket for you? What do you, what are you kind of working on now?
1: Uh, well with this book uh, wrapped up and, and out there now, uh, back to you know working on the games as, as you know, I always have uh, lots going. And uh, my uh, game that I, we, we were talking about a little bit before relics of Rajahara right now that is being sh- uh, shipped. It's coming across uh, over the ocean right now to my various fulfillment centers and uh, that's going to be delivered to everybody. And so in the meantime, I've been working on an expansion for it, uh, which is going to introduce about 30 new levels. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to be launching that later on, on Kickstarter uh, a little later this year. So that's, uh, in development right now.
0: Oh, that's cool. It looks like a super fun game and, uh, it, it's gotta be time intensive to that game. Uh, like the, the amount of scenarios you gotta, you gotta create, right? Like every, like every time you do a new level, that's another new scenario you have to create. How do you find the time to, to do all this? Like, do you ever <laughs> sleep or what was the deal?
1: Well, luckily, I, I do this full time. So, I—I I, I mean, when I, when I was, you know, designing part time and you know working full time and family and everything, you know, it could be quite intense. So, you can you can only put so much time in. But you know, having more time is good. But still, I, I say, like being a full time game designer, I'm surprised how much little how little time I actually spend on game design because there's all the other things you go into, especially when you become a publisher and you're writing and everything too. Uh, but yeah, it's though it's it's a really fun game to work on, uh, but it is challenging because every level essentially being a different puzzle, one of the toughest things is making sure that there actually is a solution to every level. And I've I've definitely created some where I've sent it off to play testers and they've been like, I've been been trying to figure this out for like an hour and I can't get through it. And I'm like, okay, let me go back to it and try it. And I'm like, oh geez, (laughs) there is no solution. Like, and, and in some cases it's just a matter of, oh, when I took, you know, a picture of the level that I had set up and transposed it into like Photoshop into a card Uh, you know one block was out of place and and in a puzzle or something like that what just one little thing being slightly out of place can turn it from a good challenging puzzle to being impossible to solve or making it so super easy that you can solve it in in no time flat so you have to be super careful but that's that's why we play test because i never want to put out any any puzzles or any levels or any game that are unsolvable so uh that's probably the biggest challenge with that
0: well joe thank you so much for coming on the podcast i look forward to having you back for round four And uh, all the best this coming year.
1: Oh, thanks so much, James. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks again.
0: Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.